Hello and welcome to Exiting the Cave, a podcast dedicated to sharing philosophical insights, the practice of epistemic humility, and generally learning how to look directly into the sun. My name is Greg Gauthier, and I'm an amateur philosophy geek. I'll be your host on this journey. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of uh, Exiting the Cave. This is not an episode of Boethius. The Boethius episodes will continue on Sundays as normal. Instead, what I've done is I've put together a lengthy analysis of Plato's forms as I see it. I hope you enjoy it. It's become a commonplace habit in contemporary quasi-philosophical circles to roll one's eyes and snicker whenever the mention of Plato's forms happens to sour the air. It seems to be taken for granted these days that the forms just aren't done anymore, that somehow they've been shown to be disreputable or false, and that no one need any longer to take the idea seriously, least of all professional philosophers. Yet at the same time, one habit I have acquired during the last four years of intense philosophical study as a genuine student is the reflex of taking people's ideas seriously. And for all the dismissals, nobody has ever bothered to explain to me why the forms are no longer taken seriously or how they've been shown to be disreputable. Over the course of this podcast, I'll be outlining the theory of forms, beginning with why Plato might have concocted the theory in the first place, moving next to what exactly the theory is and how it works, and finishing up with an analysis of the criticisms of the forms offered by Parmenides primarily, and a few other criticisms since then. The point of this podcast is to answer for myself the why and how questions nobody else is either willing or able to give me. That process has to begin with the reflex I just mentioned. In order to be confident of why I ought to either accept or reject this theory, I need to understand the theory, and to understand it, I need to portray it to myself as closely as possible as Plato would have portrayed it to himself. Along the way, I hope my listeners find this useful as well. Let's begin. Why forms? We may give the pre-Socratics credit for having built on the solid fact that all physics, if not all science, has a mathematical basis. G.M.A. Group, Plato's Thought When forms are what they are in relation to one another, their essence is determined by the relation among themselves and has nothing to do with resemblances. Plato, Parmenides Socrates seemed to have been engaged in a project very similar to that of the pre-Socratics. His theory of forms, if we can rightly attribute it to him and not just Plato, seems to be an attempt to do in the qualitative sense what the Pythagoreans had done in the quantitative sense. By positing a theory of forms for qualities such as likeness, beauty, greatness, or justice, 
Socrates seemingly hoped he could show the ultimate intelligibility of every facet of experiential reality to be just as absolute and true as the sum of a series of numbers, or the square of the hypotenuse. Ideas are what they are in relation to one another, Parmenides echoes back to Socrates in his eponymous dialogue, in the same way that numbers are what they are in relation to one another. If that is so, and we can use numbers to say certainly true and useful things about the contents of the material world, then surely the same is possible for the forms in relation to the experiential world. Aristotle appears to be partially confirming this hunch in his metaphysics. Socrates, disregarding the physical universe and confining his study to moral questions, sought in this sphere for the universal. Plato followed him and assumed that the problem of definition is concerned not with any sensible thing, but with entities of another kind, for the reason that there can be no general definition of sensible things which are always changing. These entities he called forms, and held that all sensible things are named after them sensible and in virtue of their relation to them. Whereas the Pythagoreans say that things exist by imitation of numbers, Plato says that they exist by participation. As to what this participation or imitation may be, they left this an open question. Further, he states that besides sensible things and the forms, there exists an intermediate class of objects, the objects of mathematics which differ from sensible things in being eternal and immutable, and from the forms in that they are many similar objects of mathematics, whereas each form is itself unique. If Aristotle is correct, then the forms and the objects of mathematics are not simply categorical siblings. Instead, there is a hierarchical order of inheritance in which the forms are primary because they are templates of unity, and the objects of mathematics are templates of plurality. But mathematical objects include the properties of eternality and immutability of the forms, because they are similarly independent of material reality. This will be interesting to return to later when looking at Parmenides' critique of the forms. But, returning to Socrates and Plato's motivations, the fundamental conundrum facing Socrates was this. His method of definition was forcing him into a dilemma. If definition is knowledge, and definition is not possible in an ever-mutable Heraclitian reality, then knowledge of the world was not possible, and the skeptical sophists turn out to be tragically correct. We cannot know anything. If, however, there is an intelligible reality of absolute truths about sensible reality from which we can derive analytical definitions for qualitative experiences, in the same way we can derive analytical definitions for quantitative phenomena through the imitation of numbers exhibited by objects, then knowledge is possible. The sophists are thankfully wrong, and there are things we can say with certainty that we do indeed know. This should sound eerily familiar to anyone who's read any Descartes. 1,700 years later, he will still be struggling with the same problem. But that's a topic for another day. According to G.M.A. Grube, 
One third-century commentator is purported to have credited Aristotle with five distinct arguments supporting the necessity of the forms. The first argument seems to implicitly acknowledge Parmenides' final objection to Socrates, to which we'll return later. And if I'm not being too optimistic, seems to also implicitly partially affirm my intuition above. The Arguments from the Sciences 1. If every science fulfills its function by having some one thing as its object, there must be such a single thing which is the object of that science. It must be unchanging and eternal, an eternal model beyond the particular sensible things, for these cannot be the objects of knowledge in the proper sense. The particular things or incidents in the physical world happen according to this model. This model is the form. 2. The objects of science exist, but science is concerned with something beyond the particulars which are infinite in number and indeterminate, while science is determined. There are therefore certain things beyond the particulars, and these are the forms. 3. Medicine is not the study of my health or your health, but of health as such. So the objects of geometry are not this or that equal or commensurate object, but equality and commensurability as such. These must exist and are the forms. These three ways of stating the case all come to this. Knowledge and science exist. They cannot be the particular things we know, since these are in a perpetual state of change, whereas the objects of science must be constant. There must therefore be eternal and immutable realities, which we call the forms. The best illustration is that of the mathematical sciences. So there does seem to be an association between the analytical truths of mathematics and the theorized analytical truths of experience that the forms could provide. There is a debate in the field of ancient philosophy over whether Plato was trying to reconcile two categories of knowledge, analytic and synthetic, or instead trying to establish the supremacy of a mind-dependent reality over the sciences. The resolution of this debate, one way or the other, is less important to me than the fact that it exists at all, because it shows that the scholars themselves are also aware of the fundamental problem Plato was grappling with, as I've outlined here, and are simply quibbling over the precise shape of that problem. For my part, at the moment, I'm tending toward J.N. Finlay's view from his book, Plato, The Written and Unwritten Doctrines. This is partly because of the quote from the metaphysics above, and partly because I see Plato representing the transcendent half of the larger transcendence versus immanence debate that took place between him and Aristotle. But that, too, is a much larger discussion for another day. In any case, the theory of forms comes in three basic varieties. And these varieties are themselves the expression of a tension between two different characterizations of the forms, immanence versus transcendence. This tension expresses itself further in a conflict over how we relate to the forms. To put it in simple terms, how separate are we from the forms? Each of the variations of the theory attempts to reconcile these two conflicts in a very different ways. 
I'll present the three varieties here in the order of strenuousness with which Plato argued for them weakest to strongest. 1. Forms as literal ideas. Maybe each of the forms is a thought and properly occurs only in the mind. In this way, each of them might be one and no longer face the difficulty of infinite regress and multitude. Each thought is one, is a thought of something that is one thing, which the thought thinks is over all the instances, being some one common character. Parmenides 132b This is the weakest of the formulations, and the least strenuously argued for. What's fascinating is that it is the most intuitive of the definitions, and is what most people imagine at first when the discussion of Plato's forms begins, and from a modern perspective offers the closest concept to modern mathematical concepts like number and formula. As we'll see later, this formulation is not entirely incongruous with the others. Plato's theory of knowledge as recollection requires that the recollection resides somewhere, and in the mind is where that is. But what makes this theory different from the others is that it attempts to claim that the form is only in the mind and nowhere else, recollected or otherwise. Given Socrates' emphasis on the method of definition in his early dialogues, it may be tempting to think of the forms merely as definitions of things, as the attempt to capture in language the one or two properties of a thing that makes it that thing. And in this sense, the theory of forms as ideas has some plausibility. But as GMA Group points out, for a definition to be universally valid, Plato felt it must be the definition of a constant reality, independent of any particular specimen of the thing defined. A definition of man, for example, is not of any particular man, but of man, which is a reality quite independent of the particular you or me. This reality is the eidos, the platonic form of man. Later, we'll discuss Parmenides' objections, showing how forms as merely ideas could not be the case. But the point here is to say that because Plato is quietly already committed to a different formulation, the noumenal one discussed below, he is quick to abandon this particular one on Parmenides' first refutation of it. 2. Forms as the Patterns of the Artificer What appears most likely to me is this. These forms are like patterns set in nature, and other things resemble them and are likenesses, and this partaking of the forms is, for the other things, simply being modeled on them. Parmenides 132d here, Plato envisions the forms as either a sculptor's miniature or a blacksmith's mold. This formulation of the forms is one Aristotle would likely have found appealing. It suggests a shapeless, indefinite substance which is pressed or sculpted into a definite object, according to a plan or model, like a statue or a coin or a sword. 
This notion of the forms is appealing as an ontological explanation of the existence of things. Clearly similar concepts were appealing to Aristotle in the same way. But Plato's task with the forms was not accounting for the existence of things. It was to account for the knowledge of the things that exist. More to the point, accounting for our subjective experience of those things. Why do we have the idea of things at all? Again, Parmenides will make short work of this conception of the forms as well, and Plato will move on. 3. Forms as noumenal entities I am borrowing the term noumenal from Kant here, as dangerous as that might seem, because I think it best and most concisely expresses the notion of forms as Plato seems to have finally settled on them. Ideal objects belonging to a transcendent reality, apprehended only by the mind itself. There are many places where Plato makes this argument. The most famous is perhaps the depiction of the good in the Republic. But the best technical explanations can be found right in the Parmenides, along with several passages in the Phaedo and the Mino. This passage from the Phaedo best encapsulates the problem that Plato is trying to solve and begins to introduce us to the kind of thing a form might be. Mathematical reasoning is most successful when the mind is not troubled by hearing, sight, pleasure, pain, or any of those things, when it is alone as far as possible and without concern for the body, when it has the least possible contact or association with the body, it reaches out toward reality. Whoever of us prepares himself best and most exactly to perceive each thing in itself will come nearest to knowing each thing. Phaedo 65b it is not so hard to see why Whitehead famously declared that all of the European philosophical tradition could be safely characterized as footnotes to Plato. This passage hints strongly not only at Kantian noumenal things in themselves, but also at Cartesian clear and distinct ideas. In its emphasis on mathematics and the absolute necessity of intelligibility for true knowledge, Plato has presaged, or more probably provided the intellectual fodder for, the rational move and mind-body dualism by almost 2,000 years. In any case, the point is that Plato wants to understand how the world we live in, the world of constant flux, as Heraclitus would put it, can be intelligible at all. Why aren't humans just like the other animals, who are capable of nothing more than generation, sensible excitation, and destruction? How is it that we can also understand our plight as mortal creatures? For that, as he says in the Phaedo passage above, we must contemplate the underlying reality of things, and when we do, what we will find is a reality composed fundamentally of intelligible things that give the superficial sensible reality its definite presence. There are certain forms from which particular things, by getting a share of them, derive their names. As, for instance, they come to be like by getting a share of likeness, large by getting a share of largeness, 
and just and beautiful by getting a share of justice and beauty. Parmenides 131a And If, in the case of sticks and stones and such things, someone tries to show that the same thing is many and one, we say that he is demonstrating something to be many and one, not the one to be many or the many to be one. Parmenides 129a And The form would not be at the same time as a whole in things that are many and separate, and thus separate from itself, because like the day, the form is in many places at the same time, and is nonetheless not separate from itself. Parmenides 131b And There is an absolute beauty and goodness and largeness and the like. If there be anything beautiful other than absolute beauty, should there be such, that it can be beautiful only in so far as it partakes of absolute beauty, and I should say the same of everything. Phaedo, 100b. And Nothing makes a thing beautiful but the presence and participation in beauty in whatever way or manner obtained. For as to the manner I am uncertain... But I am certain, I stoutly contend, that by beauty all beautiful things become beautiful. Phaedo, 102b. And, Socrates, what do you call the quality by which the bees do not differ, but are alike? You could find me an answer, I presume? Mino, I could. Socrates, And likewise with the virtues, however many and varied they may be, they all have one common character, whereby they are virtues, and on which one could of course be wise and keep an eye when one is giving a definitive answer to what virtue really is. Mino, 72b through c. The idea of a form, then, seems to be serving a number of useful purposes. It is an attempt to give a definitive account for difficult to define objects, such as man and animal. It is an attempt to quantify the qualitative aspects of reality, such as the beautiful and the virtuous, even including subjective experiences such as largeness and sameness. And it is an attempt to explain how these things are not mere doxa, opinion, but noesis, knowledge. That's quite a tall order, and as we'll see in the upcoming conclusion, Plato wasn't quite as successful at accomplishing these goals as he might have assumed he was. But there is a very good reason for this, I think. The Plausibility of Forms Why was Plato so enamored with the notion of the form? We will see in the subsequent conclusion that from his Parmenides, he must have been entirely aware of the weakness of his theory. Grube says, Plato insisted on the possibility of knowledge and upon the existence of absolute values. To do this, he had to establish the existence of an objective, universally valid reality, and this he found in the forms. But why was he insisting on absolutes at all? This goes back to an earlier question I posed. Why is it that we are able to look upon the world as sensible beings and yet apprehend it as intelligible beings? 
How is it that the world has an intelligible order? And how is it that we are able to apprehend it? Two key influences on Plato, according to some scholars, were Pythagoras and Anaxagoras. The former impressed upon Plato the fact that there were indeed knowable realities that stood independent of our senses. Mathematics works, and it works everywhere and always, regardless of how the physical world may be changing continuously. This is why the forms must be universal and unchanging for Plato. Our qualitative experience of the world must be explainable in just the same way as our quantitative understanding of it. This just is what explanation is. More importantly, however, is what Plato took from Anaxagoras. As G.M.A. Grube rightly points out, Anaxagoras insisted on the permanence of qualities and posited noose, mind, as the origin of motion and the guiding principle of the universe. The essential reality of things was to be found not in the material components, but in their logos. We can give them credit for having built on the solid fact that all physics, if not all science, has a mathematical basis. Logos, then, is the discernibility or intelligibility of the universe. Intelligibility is only possible where noose is present. Noose is the guiding principle and motivating force of all things, according to Anaxagoras. To understand the universe, then, is to understand the mind that gives rise to it. What is this mind? What is its nature? How different is it from the mind of man? Is it Plato's demiurge? Does it have conscious intention as we do? Is the universe itself a kind of medium within which mind is made manifest, like writing on paper or a bacterial culture in agar? This is why the forms are important, and why Plato saw them as essential. He imagined them to be not only the way we made contact with the mind of God, but also the way in which the human mind exercised its God-resembling powers. This is the reason why Aristotle argued for the contemplative life as the highest form of virtuous living, and imagined the demiurge as a being that lived a perpetual life of self-contemplation. The reality that mattered was the transcendent reality, where the mind that instantiated the order we were capable of discerning existed, and it should be our goal as humans to return to that reality and give an account of our mortality. This is why the idea of the form as an imminent character is a non-starter, ultimately, for Plato, because it doesn't actually answer the question he's asking. Insisting on imminent character is just pushing back the goalposts. Why is it we are capable of recognizing imminent order at all? by apprehending the transcendent order that gives rise to it in the first place. That's how. As we'll see shortly, the insistence on transcendence is going to be a major problem for Plato. This is the problem of separation I mentioned earlier. Parmenides made the problem of our relation to the forms a centerpiece of his criticism, and it is a criticism from which Plato did not seem to recover. So, to recap and summarize, there are three different kinds of forms presented to us in the Parmenides by Socrates. First, relational. 
the subjective experience of qualities of things relative to each other. For example, bigness, sameness, or heaviness, and their oppositions, smallness, difference, or lightness. Two, ontological. The model or exemplar of actual things, for example, man, animal, fire, and water, but inexplicably not things like sticks and stones and mud and sealing wax. And third, ethical. Truthfulness, goodness, beautifulness, and justice. This conception is the one that has the most traction, at least with later Neoplatonic followers, for example, Plotinus and Olympiodorus. And as we saw previously, there were three basic theories for the existence of these forms. First, as literal ideas, concepts in the mind that have no ontological status beyond the mind, out of which all things are materialized. Second, patterns in nature, something similar to a blacksmith's mold or an artist's miniature from which all things are copied. Third, noumenal entities, universal transcendent beings in which all particulars participate in some way. As we'll see, Parmenides is careful to move fluidly between these three kinds, and these three theories in order to make his case against the young Socrates and his forms. Depending on the author and the level of complexity of the analysis, some parse Parmenides' case into four objections, some five, some six. For the sake of limiting the difficulty of this post, I'll be taking the four-objection approach, clustering the minor ones in where they make the most sense. I'll go through each of Parmenides' objections as they occur in the course of the dialogue and consider whether he sufficiently refuted Socrates. Objection 1. Reconciling unity with plurality. The first of the objections Parmenides raises is to challenge Socrates to account for how the forms as unities can manifest themselves severally in concrete particulars. He's essentially asking Socrates to reconcile unity with plurality. If the whole form is present in a single particular, then it cannot be present in any other particular. Yet if only a portion of the form is present in all particulars manifesting it, then we have a divisible object which cannot be a form because said entities must be perfect and perfection requires indivisible unity. Socrates' rebuttal to this is to say that the forms are like the day, which is at once everywhere and experienced severally by everyone, and yet the same whole day. This seems plausible at first glance, but Parmenides has a rejoinder to offer. He changes the metaphor to a sail, a large piece of cloth, and insists that no one covered by it is covered by the whole, and therefore the sail must have parts. Taking bigness as his example from this metaphor, Parmenides then argues that breaking bigness into necessarily smaller parts to be distributed among the particular people who manifest bigness would render the form of bigness a logical absurdity, since they would be several smallnesses. While Parmenides' initial objection is a good point, 
How can we reconcile unity with plurality? The exchange in the dialogue on this point is frustrating and disappointing. Firstly, Parmenides changes the metaphor from the day to a sail with no justification or explanation. This completely muddles Socrates' original point. To restate his case in modern terms, I experienced Tuesday in Chicago and you experienced Tuesday in New York, but it would be laughably absurd to suggest that we are experiencing different Tuesdays. Equally, it would be just as absurd to say that because I am in Chicago and you are in New York, we are experiencing different parts of the same day. It is the same day everywhere that day is taking place. Parmenides moves to the sail metaphor because he realizes it is less obviously absurd to talk about different parts of a large piece of sailcloth. This is because a day and a sail are fundamentally different in kind, and it is this shift that makes Parmenides' next step in the objection plausible. If we accept that it is only parts of the sail that are covering each particular individual, then we must accept that it is only parts of bigness that are in each big person, thus ostensibly demonstrating an incommensurability of participation in the unified form of bigness. On the original metaphor, however, accepting that there are parts is not necessary to accept participation in a given day. While the term participation may be somewhat inadequate to the task of describing a big person's relationship to the form of bigness, it certainly doesn't require the divisibility of bigness any more than our separate participation in Tuesday requires the divisibility of Tuesday. So Parmenides' first complaint turns out to be a confusion on his part. Whether this was intentional or not is a matter of debate. Some speculate that Plato was putting the confusions of the Aristotelian splitters in the academy into the mouth of Parmenides. Perhaps this is true. Regardless, it is clear that there is a way to understand the forms as a harmonization of unity and plurality in the sense conceived of by Socrates' original metaphor. As such, this objection is not enough to dismiss the theory of forms. Objection 2 the relational regress on bigness. Next, Parmenides attempts to show that the forms of the relational kind lead to a regress. He argues that a form of bigness in which big things necessarily participate and are called big by their participation must itself belong to a class of objects in which the form of bigness and big particulars are all members. This is because, on Parmenides' view, there must be something against which we can compare the form of bigness with big things to see that they are similar. This, then, would require yet another class of objects that contains the compared form of bigness and big things, and another comparator form of classes containing the form of bigness and big things ad infinitum. Again, at first glance, this seems devastating to the theory. Socrates attempts to escape this by reformulating forms as pure thoughts. This is something I talked about earlier, and I'll come back to this in a moment. But first, let's have a closer look at the regress. There are two problems that I see with Parmenides' complaint here. 
First, Parmenides is confusing universals and particulars. There is nothing to suggest that because forms have an ontological status outside the mind, they must share the same constraints and features as the particulars they characterize. Forms, if they exist, do not exist in the material, ever-changing, finite world of sensible experience. So why must a form have a form? Particulars, of course, derive their reality from forms. But the reality of the forms themselves is necessarily independent because they are perfect. What's more, being perfect unities, they must be uniques. There can be only one form of bigness, necessarily, and it stands necessarily as the originator, the RK, of all particular sensible objects that we call big. It makes no sense to call the form of bigness big itself, because that would require it to participate in itself. Participation entails being a particular, and only sensible things can be particulars. And being particular necessarily would require it to be imperfect, because copy. So Parmenides' regress turns out to be implausible. Getting back to Socrates' notion of the forms as ideas in the mind only, I have only a final speculation I'd like to offer. Presently, there is no good explanation for how it is that all of experience, indeed, all of the order of reality, isn't just a blooming, buzzing confusion, to borrow William James' famous phrase. Human minds are somehow capable of discerning patterns and definitions and organizing experiences into discrete, ordered objects. How is this possible? Is it part of the fabric of reality itself, these discrete patterns and this intelligible order? If that is true, and it's also true that only a conscious mind is capable of apprehending these things, then is it really that much of a stretch to speculate a mind or consciousness as a property of the universe itself out of which the forms arise, or whatever ordering pattern suits your fancy? Perhaps this is some form of genetic fallacy or composition fallacy, but without an explanation for how this is so, the speculation seems plausible to me. On this view, Socrates' suggestion that the forms may be only in the mind might work if we extended the notion of mind to some kind of property of the universe itself, but I'm willing to concede this as just a speculation. Objection 3. Relational Regress Redux. Likeness. This objection is often explained as a reiteration of the largeness regress. If particulars with the same property are like each other because they participate in a form of likeness, then the particulars and the form of likeness must be like each other, and that would itself require another form of likeness of forms of likeness and particulars, and so on. In addition to the points I raised in the first iteration of this problem, this objection also suffers from not actually addressing Socrates' next reconceptualization of the theory. Socrates is not suggesting a participation or presence in any imminent character with the notion of forms as patterns in nature. 
Rather, he is likening the forms to the molds in an artisan's shop or the miniatures in an artist's studio. This would make the similarity seen in particulars in nature a product of their similarity with the mold out of which they were pressed. This is a very different concept than the noumenal entities deconstructed in the first and second objections. In the context of Socrates' time, this metaphor has some plausibility. Why is it that the planets have a spherical shape, or move in near-spherical paths? Why do living creatures exhibit symmetry of physical form? Why is there water or earth or fire? Something must have pressed these objects into existence and provided the copying mechanism for nature to continue to do the work on its own. These days, we have loads of scientific explanations for how this actually happens, but at the time, Parmenides would have had a hard time objecting to this line of theorizing, which is why he chose to argue against likeness as if he were arguing against the conception of bigness before it. Objection 4. Separated at birth. The separation objection is perhaps the most important and arguably the second most famous of all Parmenides' objections to the forms. This objection, as Gill rightly points out, rests on Socrates' failure to adequately explain participation in any of the previous objections. The objection comes down to this. The forms can only relate to each other, and particulars can only relate to each other. But particulars cannot relate to the forms, and the forms cannot relate to the particulars. Therefore, even if they did exist, the forms would have no relevance to the existence of particulars. I find the objection from an ontological perspective unconvincing for two reasons. First, as I've explained above, Parmenides appears to be engaging in a great deal of sleight of hand in his objections. He is using the relational kind when it suits him, the noumenal conception when it suits him, and the ontological conception when it suits him. I suppose you could respond that the variety in Socrates' theory is itself enough to discount the theory as unworkable. After all, what exactly are we talking about here? Which combination of these things are we to take as canonical? I'm inclined to agree with that. What's more, I think the separation argument does have some teeth as an epistemological problem. Even if the forms exist, and even if we could defend the notion of participation, there remains the problem of how we can know any of this is actually the case. As put by Gill, If things in our realm can be known and explained without reference to forms, and if we are fully empowered within our realm, how much have we lost if we give up the forms? They seem irrelevant. Indeed, in Socrates' metaphysics, the forms are absolutely essential. The forms are causally necessary for things being as they appear to us. As Gill puts it, imminent character accounts for appearances, and the forms account for imminent character. 
But if, because the realm of forms is indeed inaccessible to us, either intelligibly or sensibly, because timeless and perfect entities cannot be known by finite, changing beings, then we cannot know the ultimate reality of the imminent characters we apprehend with our senses, and it indeed seems we are trapped in a Cartesian hell of varying degrees of uncertainty and vagueness. Quoting Gill again, Remove the causal link, as Parmenides does in the separation argument, and we no longer have access to what things really are. Conclusion The forms, it turns out, are only pointers to a much deeper problem that we are not often willing to admit. Plato was attempting to bridge the gap between subjective experience and objective reality, between appearance and substance, between moral sentiment and mathematical certainty. And he was hoping to do it in one motion with the invention of the forms. All of the basic questions, what is happening when I identify something as beautiful? How do I know that something is good? Why am I able to have the concept of a person? The forms were supposed to give us insight into all these things. But if we can't even know what the forms themselves are, we can't possibly answer any of the other questions with any certainty or honesty. In the end, it is this last objection that kills the theory for me as nothing more than an interesting speculation. It's one of the reasons why I find Kant's work so unconvincing. He runs headfirst into the noumenal for much of his work on ethics, and as we've seen here, it is far from clear what that is.